Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, presented by the Zion Art Society, produced by Eric Biggert and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. In this podcast, we interview artists, curators, and collectors about the visual art in Latter-day Saint culture. This week, we have an interview with Ashley Whitaker, the Roy and Carol Christensen Curator of Art, of Religious Art at BYU Museum of Art, about the new exhibition in the arena, The Art of Mahanrai Young. For the past two years, Ashley has been researching and preparing for this major retrospective of Mahanrai, who is one of the foundational figures in LDS art and who was world famous in his day. Um, Join me as we uh, talk about this exhibition and how Ashley decided to choose the works that she did. We are here with Ashley Whitaker, the Roy and Carol Christensen Curator for Religious Art at BYU Museum of Art. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We we, uh, always love having you. And uh, our excuse, because we're always looking for an excuse to have you, but we didn't have to look very hard (laughs) because you just had an opening for the exhibition in the arena, The Art of Mahan Ray Young, which opened this month at, uh, at, uh-huh. at the museum. It's on show in the basement, and uh, it runs through until when? Until September 21st. And we're going to put this show out this week because you have your opening night, like the big soiree is happening this Friday. It is, yeah. Right? The 31st. And we're excited because actually... Um, Mahan Rai's family, who are back east, he had three children, I'm sorry, two children, three grandchildren, and some of his grandchildren and their families are coming out to see the show and to just talk about Mahan Rai a little bit and enjoy this opening. We have a huge holding of Mahan Rai's work at BYU, and uh, we wanted to have a significant exhibit that would help introduce Mahanrai to a new generation of our community. We did an exhibit. It's been 20 years now. Yeah, um, it was, it so was time. It's, we thought it was time to bring yeah. it back and, and celebrate. So It seems like this is, this is the cycle that museums have, right? That they need to have occasionally a reassessment. Not necessarily like a, a reassessment in terms of like a big philosophical question mark that needs to be answered, but more like a reintroduction, a rediscovery, a, a a new report on what we know now and what's happening with 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 a particular artist that's important. And but but before we get to that, okay. I want to ask about the family. Because Mahan Rai, and we'll get to a sketch of his life, his second wife was a weir. Uh-huh. And the weirs were about as close as you get to American art royalty as there were. His uh his uh, his father-in-law was a professor of art at West Point. Am I getting that right? Or is I that... believe so. And and, believe and, so. and he did he did murals. He did work, and he taught generations of artists. We don't think of West Point as being a great center of art, but he had a big collection and was an influential artist. And then he had mm-hmm. Jay Alden Weir, who's one of the famous American artists of the 19th century. So the family that's back that's back east. The fact that you involved him is fantastic. I want to know what their relationship with BYU is or with Mahan Rai's art or what are they doing? What is that family's story? They are. Maybe they don't like to be talked about. I don't know. No, they're such, I mean, they're gracious and they're warm and they have a passion for Mahan Rai. 
Um, I mean, as I said, Mahanrai himself had two children. His first wife was Cecilia Sharp Young, and he and Cecilia met here in Salt Lake. They married in 1907, and then, um, you know, by 1910, they moved from Salt Lake back to New to New York. Mahanrai wanted to establish his career there, and um, from those two children, the grandchildren. Um, I mean, they have memories of working with Mahanrai in his studio hmm. uh, when he was creating This Is The Place Monument. By that time, he had married Dorothy Weir Young after so Cecilia have, passed away. So his two children came from Celia Sharp. Yeah, yeah. And then he marries later into the Weir family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so Cecilia sadly passes away in 1917. They had only been married 10 years, and... Um, she got cancer and passed away. He was um, a widower for 15 years, then meets you know, meets Dorothy Weir. They are friends, and then they court, and then they're married in 1931. And um, he then goes with Dorothy to her, you know, J. Alden Weir's estate in Connecticut, which had become an artist haven in J. Alden's lifetime, you know, this American Impressionist Center. And, um, and he and Dorothy who Dorothy herself was an artist. She had trained hmm. um, at the National Academy of Design and was pursuing painting, you know, as as she could while managing the estate. They both are there creating artwork. Um, and his grandchildren have fond memories of that. I mean, they'll talk about yeah, helping him sculpt, watching him create the huge plasters. It's kind of a um, marriage between two artists then. It's almost like yeah. there's kind of a mutual respect of... And yeah, it was of, a strong of, bond between them. Interesting. Very strong bond. And the family, um, I mean, Mahanrai himself, in terms of he was the grandson of Brigham Young. Let's you know, talk about born, that. It kind of feeds into to his family now. I mean, he was born August 9th, 1877. So three weeks before Brigham passes away. And um, and Mahanrai himself, I mean, from, from everything I've researched and read, as an adult, he was never what we would say a practicing kind of devotional member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But his heritage was key to who he was, his pioneer heritage. He never refuted it. In fact, he writes of leaving Salt Lake for the first time as a young artist to go study in New York, and this would be about 1899. And I believe it was one of his his aunts on the young side or some someone warned him, like, be careful, you know, to not to not let anyone really know about your, you know, what they called Mormon heritage because, I mean, we're talking, we're within just several years of things like the manifesto and, you know, polygamy and the Mormon culture was talked about in... The church had probably gone to a big extent, and we, and we know they did, when, with the opening of the Salt Lake Temple. Yeah. There had been a lot of PR. So 1899, the temple opens up with like 1893. 1893. So he couldn't, everybody had an opinion about Mormonism by this point, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But there were all sorts it wasn't, of stories. It wasn't all, it wasn't, <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't all positive. It was and a so mixed it, bag. Yeah, it was this, yeah. this idea if you're going back east, maybe this isn't going to work in your favor <laughs> you know, and, to and bring it up. You're a young. And it was interesting. Essentially, Mahanrai's response was, no, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be ashamed. I'm not going to refute my, 
my heritage. He owned it his whole career, mm. you know, and people honestly would say as soon as they found out he was a Utah guy, not only that, but from Salt Lake City, a young he was often asked, are you related to Brigham Young? And always it was this heritage was an important part of him. And we see it in what he created artistically. Um, and that heritage has really passed down. I feel to his children and grandchildren, they have such a love for Mahanrai. They know mm. about him. They know and cherish his work. Um, and they themselves have, you know, have this great sense of identity and being linked to Mahanrai and to Brigham and kind of this pioneer history. Interesting. It's something that, something that I don't know if people understand because we as, as members of the church often um, don't understand how our art or culture is perceived outside of the church. Mahanrai was a big deal internationally. Yeah, you and I did an, uh, a, a small exhibition together on just his boxing paintings, and he, as part of that, we had this small watercolor that was signed Mahanrai Young, and it said on the back, "Me, Gertrude, and Leo Stein painting on the Seine." Right, no big deal. So he's he's he knows <laughs> he knows Dali, he knows Picasso, he knows all of these people. He's living in Paris. The Pulitzers are collecting his work. The Rockefellers are. He is, for all intents and purposes, and he's judging shows all over the country and the world. Yes. Yep. So he's not only accepted by in the commercial side and accepted on the academic side as someone who's, but and, and he's he's an influencer on all kinds of levels. Mm -hmm. He was how big of a deal. How how would you describe how big of a deal he is to people? You know, it's interesting because. You're right. I mean, he was, in his day, one of the big names in American art, realist art. Um, he was in all of these you know, elite circles of, you know, these New York clubs of artists and thinkers. And he moved in these incredible spheres of influence. And his name was known. Um, he'll joke. I mean, Mahanrai himself wrote at some point later in his career that, you know, he still owned the best Mahanrai paintings and sculptures and etchings. You know, as an artist, he I don't know if he ever really felt like he'd necessarily made it or was, you know... I don't know if any artist ever feels yeah, like they exactly. entirely make it, right? Typical artist. But by... I mean, we've referenced his boxing images, which by the 1920s, he moves into this, this focus on boxers in sculpture and in painting, prints, everything. And that was a real... A real impetus for him. Those were so popular. Boxing itself was flourishing in the 20s. It was now legal, etc. It was the big sport. And so you start to see by 1928, Vanity Fair is calling him, you know, probably America's most notable sculptor. Popular interest um, bumps up his career. So by the 30s, you really see him, like you've said, he's in all of these shows nationwide. He's jurying competitions, museums, the big museums, the Met, the Brooklyn Museum, um, Detroit Institute. I mean, now LACMA, all these museums are collecting images by him. Um, and we don't, yeah, because of, you know, the beat of art history, the avant-garde gets the limelight. Yeah. And, you know, in some respects, because Mahanrai was so true to what he thought was important art, which was 
scenes of people working, this everyday approach, this realist sensibility. You know, the textbooks forget him and a lot of mainstream art discussions left him behind. Mm. Uh, but he was a huge deal. Let's talk about really, where really he came important. from, like where he, the art that he grew up and cut his teeth on. Mm. So he yeah. he's born in 1877, you say. Uh-huh. He kind of lives a rural lifestyle because he inherits, I think, from the from the young family, uh, some kind of mill. Is that right? I think that's right. Ish, and then, yeah. And, yeah. And then a connection. when does he get involved in art? So his father, Mohan Rai Moriankumar Young, uh, was, you know, Brigham's son. Mohan Rai Can we just call him Mohan Rai, the brother of Jared Young? Would <laughs> right. that be shorter? It's just, just easier. Uh, yeah. That his, Mohan Rai's father, our Mohan Rai, the artist's father, inherits the Deseret Woolen Mills. That's and that's where, where that's where Mohan Rai spends his formative years from, you know, zero to six years old. And even then he recounts memories of that was this golden childhood era where he every day was surrounded by people working and machinery. And for him, that was fascinating, endlessly fascinating. Um, his father also... You know, Mahan Rai says that it's his father who gives him his first, you know, sense of art. Hmm. Mahan Rai's ill and his father brings him in some, you know, some wood carving, some clay that he can play with. And that's where Mahan Rai, even as a young boy, Interesting. They, the family starts to see, oh, he likes this and he's got kind of a gift of making these clay forms. And that sparked his interest. Sadly, at age, when Mahan Rai is six years old, his father dies. Hmm. And so at that point, uh, Mahan Rai, his two younger brothers, and his mother leave the woolen mills and move back into the avenues onto C Street. And that's, that's where he is surrounded by, you know, childhood friends like Lee Green Richards, another prominent Utah artist. Um, mm. Jack Sears, another artist. And so he has this childhood of, he writes, of, you know, playing boyhood games, but he and these friends of his loved art. They loved to draw. They loved to get their hands on, you know, magazines that would talk about they're art. They're kind of city kids. Yeah, they're city kids. They're city kids, and, they've, and they're the second generation, maybe I guess you'd argue the, the third generation. So you've kind of got like these, the CCA Christensen's, the Waglands, and the Ottingers. And then you've got after them, the Harwoods and the Hafens, and Harwood teaches the uh-huh. Jack Sears and the Lee Green Richards of the world. What was Mahanrai's relationship with that generation of artists, of the the art missionaries and and the Harwoods? Did he have much of one? I mean, um, I know of a couple quotes here and there, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that. Harwood was an influence on him of that yeah. group, but I wouldn't say that Mahanra gives any sense that he was looking to Edwin Evans or Loris Pratt or Hafen in a deep way. Yeah, um, then these were all the art missionaries sent by the, the church yeah. to study in Paris, and they come back and and Mahanra, he, he he could take them or leave them is what you're saying. In retrospect, he doesn't attribute a great deal to them. Yeah, I mean there seems to be a couple of standout moments for Mahanra. Cyrus Dallin. So Utah-born sculptor who yeah. made his career out in Massachusetts, you know, Paul Revere statue. Yeah, Massasoit does yeah, all of these major monuments, mm-hmm. but really established himself back east eventually. Yeah, and, you know, Cyrus Dallin does the Angel Moroni here in Salt Lake. That's right. And Mahanrai writes of 
and I can't remember all the specifics, but there's some leftover clay that Cyrus Dallin leaves from some project. I'm sorry, I'm blowing this story, but no. but the Mahanra and one of his friends get this clay. And from it, they begin to sculpt. And Mahanrai makes this head. And for him, that was like a signature moment. He used Cyrus Dallin's clay to, to sculpt head. this head. Um, and then he talks about Harwood and the influence of studying under uh, J.T. Harwood. Mahanrai knew as a teenager he either wanted to be a rancher or an artist and went with art his mom encouraged him to go with art. And That's so interesting. He, he appreciated what Harwood did. Harwood trained these boys, I'll say boys, these young artists in the academic method, taught them really to look at anatomy and, and perfect you know, some of those skills. Even at that time, though, Harwood had a practice of having his students look through catalogs from the Paris Salon to see what you know significant artists were doing. Interesting. And even then, Mahanrai recounts that he would look at these catalogs and, you know, see examples of good composition and such, but wasn't moved by mythology or biblical subjects as much as he was moved by images he saw in magazines like McCall's and Scribner's that showed French realist artists of the 19th interesting, century. Interesting, because you, you've got artists like Richet, Soro who's a sculptor, Soroya, Jules Breton, all of these artists who are doing what we eventually term social realism, right? This idea that that art in, in depicting the common man almost as if it's as if it's, a, it's if there's something about the morality of pushing forward these forgotten figures who are under the underlying foundation of our civilization. I mean, it's the same time communism is happening, right? And it's also mm -hmm. industry. It's interesting that he picks up on that. I I wonder. As you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, here you've got this idea that that Mormons in many ways, we shouldn't use the term Mormons, I'm sorry, Latter-day Saints, are homesteading. <laughs> and so uh -huh. on some level, they're comparable to other homesteaders throughout the United States, whether they're in Alaska or in Montana or in Arizona. But on another level, because of this this kind of feeling of, 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 uh, of missionary work, there's this... There's no barrier to just going back east or going to Europe. Like, they just think of it as like, oh, yeah, we'll just go to Europe. And and the thought that Mahanrai could grow up basically on the edge of the frontier in some level, in some uh -huh. level, right? Yeah. But then think, oh, yeah, Paris. Oh, yeah, New York. I can go do that. That blows my mind. And, and that Harwood... Maybe he wasn't an influence on a level aesthetically, but at least conceptually the idea of, oh, I can go do that. Yeah, well, absolutely. That's, that's, that seems to me like that's not much of a leap, right? The, the, to absolutely. think that that's possible. And he, yeah. And Harwood gave them that vision and kind of gave them that idea. And Mahanrai himself felt like, if I, if I really want to be an artist, like... I know the next step. So I'm going does, to New York. So he goes to New York, and uh -huh. where does he? What does he do first? What does he enroll in? Um, what is the circle he gets involved with? You know, he he enrolls. He's only in New York for about eight months. He he scraped together all the money he could to make that trip. Um, and but in that those eight months, I mean, he's in the classroom. Um, he's studying under. There were there was one illustration kind of illustrator that taught, and oh, suddenly I can't remember his name. This is awful. <laughs> That's right. But um, 
he's in there. But again, Mahanrai, you know, he has a very independent way of thinking. Like he kind of knows what he wants early, and so he has he has one one or two professors there in New York that stand out to him. But the others, he's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't really respect them much. Um, but what he does love is wandering the streets and immersing himself in the growing uh, industry of New York and watching the people working. Hmm. And as will become his method, that's the education that means the most to him is sketching people on the streets, going to the museums, going to the Metropolitan, which was his first stop when he got in New York, was hmm. to go there and to look at the sculptures and the paintings and really get a sense for how these artists, you know, modeled the figure and how they captured the action of life. It Movement strikes me that Cyrus Dallin would have been really the only thing he'd be able to see physically. And I don't even know how much Cyrus Dallin... Because Salt Lake, there even though... There was in Utah, yeah. Temple Square, really. I mean, the first statues that were on Temple Square were Mahanrai statues. And uh -huh. I, I remember reading about how controversial it was, even at the time, because there was this thought of, we don't want it to seem like idolatry, that we've got Joseph and Hiram here on Temple Square. And even up until the Christus in the, in the 60s, this was a question of, do we have sculpture? So he's clearly not growing up in a culture where he's seen physically... He's not in Europe seeing sculpture everywhere. So he goes to the Met and he's drawn. It, it would seem like the most impractical thing to be drawn to. I can see landscape painters being thriving in Utah. Sculptors, you know, Dallin took off. Yeah. Right? So he goes to, he, and, and the thing that I, one of the things that I, I find fascinating about him is that he keeps his feet in both throughout. And going to your exhibition, when you walk in, it's immediate that there are copious amounts of both sculpture and painting. Did he ever... You've been immersed in his life and his writings and letters for a couple of years now. Um, is that how it seemed to him that he didn't have to choose? Did he feel torn between sculpture and painting? What was... What was his... Uh, did he feel like he ever needed to make a decision of, oh, this is the more practical route? Hmm. Um, I don't think he felt torn. No. He just made. He just made. It, yeah. What were the first I mean, words? He, oh, go ahead, go ahead. There's a famous oft-quoted statement that he wrote in, <clears throat> you know, the 1940s. He has this retrospective exhibit, and he writes a, a short autobiography, and he says, I, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a sculptor. So I think sculpture was kind of first and foremost his, his love, if he really had to be forced into saying something. Hmm. Uh, Mahanrai is an exceptional draftsman. And even some of his contemporaries would were quoted about that, like Han Young. You know, a lot of his friends called him uh, Han, Han instead of Mahan Ryan. Oh, he was the original Han Solo. The original Han, yes. Uh, you know, that he was just exceptional with drawing. And so we wanted to show that in the exhibit because really for his process, I think he would go around and he was constantly drawing. You know, he had, you know the story, he had his the pockets of his you know, jacket at enlarged so he could fit his sketchbook in. So for him, drawing from life was key. He would always be sketching, getting these forms and these movements. And then he'll say that he would he would get a subject idea and he'd kind of play with what medium he felt like might best express. So that he would kind of sketch see, first and then figure uh -huh. out what medium after that was the best for what 
he had started conce- conceiving. That's the sense I get. Huh. And he'll even say, you know, I I think I'm a really, you know, I think I'm a really great sculptor. But then when I hit kind of a, a wall with my sculpture, then I, I go to drawing. And I realize, oh, yeah, okay, I'm a good draftsman. And then when I hit a wall there, I'll, I'll try out painting. So I think he really just would often repeat subjects in various media. And we have some of that in the show where you'll see the drawings. Then you'll see how he was playing with it as an etching as a painting, um, sometimes multiple different etchings. Uh, so I don't think he saw a conflict there. Mm. For him, it was just kind of finding the right fit to mm. express. And he loved color. And so I think for him, painting was a chance to so play with So he couldn't ever fully color. give up painting if he Quite loved color because there's, unless he does polychrome sculptures. Yeah. He's which, not going to, which there wasn't a great taste for. <laughs> it just right? doesn't suit the time, yeah. No. It makes me when I when I go through went through the exhibition, um, you know I I knew that when he went to New York he then comes back to Utah he goes to Paris he's he goes back to New York he goes back and then he goes back to Paris and he settles in these he's he lives a very peripatetic lifestyle and he eventually comes back to Utah and does these enormous monuments and I know I'm skipping ahead here, but one of the questions that I had as I was going through the exhibition is. Um, when you have to summarize the life of someone who plays at such a high level, but who has so many different subjects that he that 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 he plays with, from cowboys to boxers to clam diggers in in in, in Normandy, uh-huh. um, tell us how you organized the exhibition, and 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 how you decided to create areas within the exhibition of what of, of what you were going to focus on to tell the story of Mahan Rai's life. Yeah, it ooh, it was a it was a hard curatorial process, I won't lie. Simply because, like I said, at the museum we have over seven thousand objects of Mahan Rai. Because the he because the, he bequeathed them. The He's family, basically the yeah. foundation of the museum, right? Yeah, in large measure, um, that's definitely true. And some of them are, you know, these scraps of paper with a tiny sketch on them. So there's a lot to sift through. And the more I thought about it, I mean, it would be appropriate and so compelling to do an exhibit that, you know, maybe just features Mahan Rai and his New York, you know, circle and his New York work or just his boxers. Um, stay tuned that, you know, there's yeah, plenty I mean, there. You could, 50 years from now, we could see a very fresh <laughs> exhibition of... Mahan Rai Young and box and and his fellow boxing painters and sculptors, which I'm already loving. I yeah. love that. Yeah, and 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 that would be. I mean, he's just so prolific, right? Sorry, go ahead, keep going. Incredibly. So as I was going through these things, I mean, I did going back to what I said earlier. I really did want a new generation to appreciate Mahan Rai in his career in some. I wanted it to be something that really spanned his whole artistic life. And so in doing that, it was a mix of how to tell his story as a person um, through maybe a key thread, a key theme that emerges in his work, which even then isn't isn't easy to do. And there's probably other ways I could have taken it. I played with many ideas. But there's I, no platonic answer, though. There's yeah. no perfect answer. There's no perfect answer. Right. You could you could do multiple possibilities. And oh, I yeah. was. As someone who's known about him since I was a child, because of just the way I grew up, I was surprised and delighted at things. So I think, I, I mean, for me personally, it was a remarkable exhibit 
from from that perspective, I felt like, wow, I've never seen that before. And then I saw the greatest hits on top of that. So I don't think you yeah. have to worry at all about that. Yeah, no. well, thank you. At least no, from my perspective. Um, but what fascinated me is in every place he goes to, he's drawn to, again, not necessarily, you know, he wasn't about high society or idealism of, of the type that, his contemporaries may have been doing, but he was just interested in kind of the workers, the movement of life, whether mm. it was the movement of a woman, you know, just rolling up her sleeves or the movement of these men building the skyscrapers that defined New York or, you know, the movement of these like gorgeous Navajo paintings, these goat herds out on the you know bleach desert Everywhere he's going, he's looking for, I think he's drawn to that idea of people that are engaged in life and showing the movement of that and celebrating in that. I mean, it is his own kind of romanticism, celebrating the dignity of the human endeavor. Hmm. And so that's, that's the thread that unifies those different sections. And each section does tie into a key motif of his life. And also is connected with a place. That was my yeah. effort um, to so try and the get the places that were most central to his work as well as um, show how that theme played out. He saw it wherever he went. So if I were to walk into the exhibition, where's the first place you take us? Ooh. Um, New York, New essentially. York. Yeah. So looking at those, those maybe really overt labor. And he... You know, he would draw the hokey pokey man, the man selling ice cream, was just as fast as they called to him. him? As, yeah, hokey pokey. pokey. Kind of Why did we give that up? Why did we ever I give know. that up? It's just, it's just that silly dance now. Um, yeah. Shame. And in truth, it's New York and Paris. So yeah. showing these early influences, how he's looking to life, particularly life on the streets for his subject matter. And so to correct myself, we do start in Paris, but mostly the, the work comes from New York, tying into the, that major theme of labor. We haven't talked about Paris and why he goes to Paris. He's in yeah. New York. He's there for eight months and then he returns to Salt Lake, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and, but he's not there long. No, I mean, his whole goal was he was out of money in New York, so his whole goal was to go home, collect as much money as he could, so he could get to Paris. And collecting he, money, doing what? Is it illustration work yeah. that he's doing for like mid newspapers? What is he doing? Exactly, illustrations okay. for uh, Salt Lake Herald, Salt Lake Tribune, Desert Evening News, all of which, I mean, that illustration sensibility played into what we see in his career quite a bit too. Like so, he can do he can do spec images. work yeah, if he needs he to, and he can he can be because there's that quote by J T Harwood who said. Uh, Mahan Ray Young's lazy. There's, there's <laughs> like, and it's famous. It's Mahan Ray Young's lazy. And then Mahan Ray's retort is, I'm not lazy. I just think harder than I work, right? I, I don't see there's any virtue in working hard. But, but there's clearly, he's got a great work ethic. He's coming back and you can't work yeah. for newspapers to raise money if you can't work on deadline. So he's doing that, he's raises doing money. That, raises money. And just to add a little, a little, uh, owed to his mother. I mean, even at this point in time where he gets to fall of 1901 and he doesn't have enough money to make the voyage yet to Paris, but he wants to be there. He wants to be starting along with, you know, Lee Green Richards and others. Because they go to Paris at the same time. Yeah. Is A.B. right with that group too? Um, I don't know. I, I, no? I don't. Ugh. I can't say for sure. It doesn't stand out to me. I yeah. think he might be a little bit later. Yeah. Um, 
And so his mother, Agnes, Agnes McIntosh Young, she realized her son's dream. She was able to broker an inheritance from her husband. um, Because she's not a young, like, by birth. She's She's a a sharp, right? Yeah, she's not bloodline young. Um, Wait, she's not a sharp. I got that wrong. She's a Macintosh. She's a Macintosh, sorry. So um, there was a portion of land that, in truth, belonged to her husband and to her. The church had had it as a holding. So she uh, worked with Joseph F. Smith and Mm. was, they, the church agreed to purchase I got that wrong. The church agreed to purchase that lot of land, and that money she gave Mahanrai what he needed to unbelievable to make the voyage and to and saved money for her other sons to pursue <laughs> their educations as well. Love her, great story. But yeah, Mahanrai goes to Paris, and he is determined to again immerse himself in all the training that he can, realizing that's the next step for him because he wants to be significant, and he'll settle for nothing less. And does he go to the Academy Julienne? Um, does he go? To somewhere else? Where he does goes he go? to the Julian. Okay. And, and for again, those who don't know what the Academy Julian is, there's the state official system of schools, which is just called the School of Fine Arts or Ecole de Beaux Arts. And the Academy Julian is kind of this commercial endeavor started by a man named Julian who it creates this kind of supplementary education for those who can't get into that system because there was a bias against non French people, frankly, yeah. getting into it. And so a lot of great artists went to the Academy Julienne and Bouguereau taught there, Jules Lefebvre, some of the greatest artists of the era taught there. So it wasn't a bad education. It was, in fact, some people thought it was superior. And he gets into the Julienne, and he's there. Is he there with Lee Green Richards? He's there, yes. Okay. And, um... Again, he comes up against this this sense that, you know, there is some value here to sitting and sketching pose models, but not for him. Again, he's taking to the streets. I love this and stubbornness in him. He's in a yeah. way that, like, he just he knows what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants, and he love knows that. that he can't quite find it in the stagnant classroom. And so, actually, after the first two years of study, which I mean, had its I mean, he worked hard. Painting was tough for him. Mm. Um, you know, he'll write about that struggle of trying to use color and, and get those balances right. After two years, again, he decides, I just need to begin a program of self-study. He gets some flack from some of his American contemporary students that he's off doing his own thing. But 1903, he produces his first plasters, um, one of which is... The bronze of it is in our exhibit. And, uh, you know, one of his fellow students comes to his studio to look at this plaster. It's a French laborer just standing there um, based on this French canal worker that Mahanrai modeled from. And his contemporary writes that he saw the plaster and was burning with jealousy, I think are his words, mm. because Mahanrai had made it so like a real man. And after that, this this classmate who had been kind of critical of Mahanrai doing his own thing. He's like, Han can do what he wants. He's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, and Mahanrai does have success. He's got that plaster in the salon. He gets a couple of his sketches of, you know, a garlic seller into the salon, and that's also in our exhibit. So he he starts making a name for himself uh, despite his independent ways. And again, he is on the streets. He spends a lot of time in um, 
in the Louvre, mm. looking in the drawing room. He'll study the drawings of the masters. That's interesting. He's the drawings always you would looking think to would these be, classical masters. It's interesting that he's in the drawing room and not that he's hanging out in the in, in the in in the large painting Veronese, Titian, big masters rooms looking uh-huh. at the paintings. That he's looking at the 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 the, the the early early sketch work. That's yeah. interesting. How these masters captured form and the movement <coughs> and the anatomy. Um, he also is a, spends a lot of time in the sculptural areas of these museums and at monuments around the city. And he writes that the guards, particularly in the Louvre, were so accustomed to him being there, like clockwork on maybe Thursdays, it was a day of the week. They stopped paying attention to him. And so he'll he'll say, I snuck my fingers in, stuck him in the grooves of these sculptures to see exactly how deep they were getting these mm. inc- what incisions, these carvings. Um, so he was very, he was just set on studying any, Seems any like way a he super could. pragmatic approach too. <laughs> it really is, right? Like he's he's Sensible, he's figuring out handsome. like how it's like he's taking apart the car to put it back together. It's not an academic sense of just esoteric abstract thinking. He's just he's in there dig, doing the hard everyday mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So what is how long until he's making his way money wise? Is it when he gets into the salon that he starts? getting patrons do we know who his early supporters are it would seem that this is like this is kind of the belle epoque right uh-huh. and so it's it's a little pre-world war one people got money aristocrats are living high sergeants doing great with portraits and and and, and painting everybody in their jewels and silks around chinese vases but he's he's not painting that glamorous lifestyle he's painting garlic Sellers. Yeah, it's a very democratic yeah. approach to his subject matter in this time period. You know, Mahanra definitely gets some uh, some attention there in Paris. He's there for four years total. Mm. Comes back. 1905, he leaves Paris, returns uh, to Salt Lake with this vision of bringing, you know, important art and you know, his skills to Utah and becoming hmm. their sculptor. He doesn't have a lot of luck. Again, these aren't people that are... You could say that some people all, are still trying. Yeah, some people are still <laughs> trying. And he, I would say he gets the most luck with doing some portrait-type busts. Yeah. Um, and then he will he gets commissions to do something for the Deseret Gym, a freeze. You know, he works with the church to get some of these commissions. Like you mentioned, the sculptures of, of Joseph Smith and subsequently Hiram Smith that were intended for the niches in the Salt Lake Temple. Which they never really put in the niches, did they? No, oh, I, don't, I don't think so. So the yeah. scale, Mahanar is always a little... A little miffed about that. Um, success is hard to come by there, and he gets really discouraged, really mm. discouraged. So by five years later, 1910, you know, he's married now to Cecilia. They've got um, a child, and he just decides, if I'm going to make it, I need to be back in New York. That's where people are appreciating this vision I have of uh, for sculpture and for art in general. And he had kept in touch with some of his his you know, we'll say cohorts, who were back in New York. Mahanra had been back in in 08 to New York to visit and um, 
was aware of some of these artists like John Sloan, Robert Henry, who will become known as the Ashcan School, known for their gritty, realistic images of everyday city life. We have a separate, kind of a separate origin from him. Yeah. But they have a shared aesthetic. In some ways, in a their, shared in their subject matter. Subject matter, yeah. And maybe not the. Um, they're not really colorist in the way that he is in their painting. No, and they're very. They have a very a social agenda in a lot of ways to what they're showing with Ashcan. Mahanrai never really felt he was part of that. Hmm. Uh, but their their entree in New York already was paving the way for work like Mahanrai's to be accepted. So he goes to New York, 1910, and he starts to you know be accepted into shows and have some small gallery showings. He starts to get on the map. People are noting these laborer sculptures and these um, etchings. I would say... You know, financial success doesn't really... I wouldn't think he would figure himself as financially successful until maybe the 20s. And the 20s he starts are when teaching the, in 1916 as a way huh. to, to have a more stable and steady And World lifestyle. War I was probably rough. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Then, and then, you know, then uh, he's teaching and then the depression mm-hmm. kicks in. But he has in between those two the boxing scenes. Oh, yeah. Which and make him big. Those the are big name. for him. Yeah, and 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 he, there's a story that I don't know if you told it or I found it separately as we were doing that boxing exhibition together of Cole Porter's wife, yeah, who is supposedly the most beautiful woman in the world, <laughs> comes to his studio yeah. in Paris and brings her coterie of beautiful civilized women in the 1920s who all want to talk to him about the brutal world of boxing, and they all know about. All the boxing people that he's been portraying, they've been there. It's so popular to go to boxing events yeah, that even the most so. sophisticated people, Cole Porter and his wife, are sitting around talking about rights to the jaw, right? Yeah. And Ernest Hemingway sought out <coughs> Mahanrai while in Paris, you know, because of his yeah. his boxing work. Unbelievable. I mean, it's it's unbelievable uh, that that is, and it kind of makes me makes it's it's one of those things. It's easy to. To, to be nostalgic for that golden age, right? I mean, he's there. When Dali, Picasso, Ernest Amazing. Hemingway, and all these other people are there. And he's either in the circle or in the periphery of it, but they're all sharing the same friends. The Dep- Depression hits. And he he comes back to... Does he come back to the United States immediately? Is that where Because he starts doing WPA-era kind of work, right? Um, I mean, that's one of the things that is a blank for me, that I don't understand how he ends up coming back and doing things for like West High and then he does the monuments here but that's well after yeah that point. that's after but, he... but fill in for us what happens after the boxing images yeah. which we could spend a lot of time talking about but I kind of want to skip so ahead because that's the blank for me yeah is what what happens between this is the place monument and boxing images going backwards so yeah the boxing images by 1928 he starts the boxing images while he's in Paris you know, 20, 1926, 27. By 1928, he returns to New York, and he's still doing the boxing images. They really take off, and he has opportunities to do some commissioned boxing pieces. One example, you know, Madison Square Garden was the boxing venue. Big fights there with, you know, Jack Dempsey and such. Who um, was a guy from Ogden, yeah, right? Connections there. Connections and became there. a friend of Mahan Rice. 
so Mahanrai gets more of these commissions. He does a big sculpture of a boxer, a Joe Gans, that is placed in Madison Square Garden. So he's he's getting more commissions, more attention. Come the Depression, my sense is Mahanrai is actually pretty lucky because he marries Dorothy Weir in 1931. And between the two of them, they have a comfortable living. And it's curious to me, in fact, that that as he moves to spending time in Connecticut and Branchville, living there which with Which is where they've got wife, the Weir Farm. Which is where they have Weir Farm. His images become these very bucolic scenes of agriculture and harvest that are very different from what a lot of the Depression-era American realist painters are doing. Um, yeah, so there's the he, one of, of her in the garden. And then, yeah. I, I, and then there's, oh, my favorite, it's just a tiny one, is the little clothesline painting yeah. that's in the exhibit. These little vignettes of this rural country life that are actually really dreamy and really ideal. Yeah. Um, so in terms of his story, you don't hear a lot about, you know, a struggle connected with the depression quite as much. So, I mean, it impacted everyone to some degree, but they yeah. were fairly comfortable. They were fortunate that he hit a high at that time in 35. He has, um, a huge exhibit in New York of his etchings. He's doing more printmaking now. Um, with this exhibit that leads to also a solo show at the Smithsonian American Art Museum of just Mahanrai's prints, his etchings. So he is, he's riding a high tide at this point in time, which is lucky. And another note, in the 30s and 40s, he's doing, I think, you know, a little bit more with his etching. He's doing a little bit more painting. And I don't know if that part of that is because he's getting older. I mean, he's hmm. in his 50s and... And his health is, you know, not always robust. So it's easier to do some of these things than sculpting these mm. massive projects. Um, and he's got assistance. I mean, there's this great interview in the Smithsonian Archive that's like 40 or 50 pages long with one of his assistants who says, you know, I was working with, with Han and we could go, we, we were talking about going to Italy for four or five years to work on such and such a project. And then he does the This is the Place Monument. And I just thought... Wow, how how big is his workshop eventually? I mean, if he's doing etchings and he's painting and he's sculpting and he's getting older, maybe it's an unanswerable one right now, but at least he's big enough that he is kind of an industry in and of himself, right? On some to level. To some extent. My understanding <coughs> is when he starts to do This is the Place, which was a huge task done in a small amount of time, he does bring in assistance because otherwise it would not have gotten done. Um, I don't know as much about his workshop or having a lot of yeah, like permanent assistantship before huh. that. Um, definitely, this is the place is completed, if we work backwards, it's completed, of course, in 1947 for the 100th anniversary of, you know... Of the, the days of 47, days of 47 1847 the pioneers entrance. arriving. So um, Mahanrai really, he's been... He's had his eye on this commission for decades. Ever since he was living in Utah, there was some hope amongst, I think, civic and church leaders to do a monument to the pioneers one day at some point in time. So in the 30s, mid-30s, this discussion starts to become reality, and Mahanrai gets word of this, begins a campaign making sure his friends in, in Salt Lake 
that he sends them word of his national success and of his shows just to keep people knowing that Mahan Ray Young is one of the best of the best that has yeah. a Utah tie. Um, and then in the late 30s, he's actually doing mock-ups and designs to submit to the committee for This Is The Place. Um, he gets the commission, you know, early 40s and then has, if we condense it down, he really completes this enormous task in about three years. And there are, of work. I don't know how many dozens of figures and animals and... And you've also got the architectural elements of the the stone that they all need to be worked into it. That's amazing. Three it, years. It was really un, unheard of. But with these different assistants, um, pulled it off. And it, I mean, Mahanrai does nothing half-heartedly. Every element of that monument was specifically researched. His assistant, yeah. his main assistant, Sparrow Anargyros, writes about, you know, there's on a panel, there's a panel of the Donner Party on the monument, which was one of Mahanrai's favorite parts of the monument. Hmm. And there's a small, there's a rattlesnake curled up in that scene. And Mahanrai made Sparrow go through these books to narrow down of the four rattlesnake species that could have been in the area at the time, which one was which it? One was it? That's how Mahanrai was. Every detail researched out of the clothing, the muskets, um, really fascinating. But he'll he'll always say he did say that it was the greatest day of his life and the greatest accomplishment of his career. Because in the end, he he felt like he started as a sculptor, and that was really the legacy that meant the most to him was giving honor to his pioneer heritage through that that piece. I mean you've got the you've got a, 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 a maquette isn't the right word. Uh, you've got a small model uh-huh. the, in, in the exhibition that's that's near the end as you circle around. Um, I just want to say a word before we end because we're we're, we're we're running out of time. I feel like we could talk about him for so, I've got so many questions. He's such a fascinating yeah. person. And you probably more than anyone who who uh, who's tackled him has spent more time just reading through his writings, so I, I just want to soak in more of your <laughs> uh, 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 more of your experience in doing that. But one of the questions I want to I want to get to is what is B, what is his legacy at, at BYU Museum of Art? What does BYU Museum of Art owe to him? Because a lot of its collection comes from him, right? I mean, Absolutely. how much of BYU has been defined by Mahan Rai? Absolutely. So. We've alluded to, you know, Mahanrai, his marriage with Dorothy Weir. Through that, I mean, Dorothy Weir was the inheritor of a fantastic collection of her father's work, of what he had collected from his fellow Impressionists. And um, and Mahanrai himself, you know, he had his paintings. He, you know, would, would trade with other artists. And he would collect prints, just like Jay Alden did, you know, they would be collecting prints of Rembrandt and Durer to study from, and also, you know, that was just the practice of the time. They loved. Yeah, they to, were connoisseurs. Yeah, they were connoisseurs, and um, oh, tangentially, just to say, we have BYU's library, Harold Beely Library Special Collections, has a trove, an absolute trove of Mahanrai's writings, his files of clippings on all different subjects. Hmm. What is fascinating to me is how many files contain Mahanrai's thoughts and analysis of different artists. Interesting. Going back centuries. That he would just he keep as a, a journal? He was a connoisseur. He would go through and write, you know, 
Um, I've mentioned Del Sarto, Andrea Del Sarto. He was good at this. He's not so good at this. This is what I like about Rembrandt. This is where Rembrandt is a little bit weaker. Interesting. Um, he was such a fan of Courbet, Daumier. Um, I would read this Millet, book. I would read Mahanrai's insights on so, other artists. So to I would your love point, that. yeah, he was a connoisseur. And so these collections um, were gifted to the university and became such a vital part of, yeah, of the Museum of Art's holdings. And then there was no Museum of Art. So the university had this absolute treasure. Um, And then subsequently the museum was built to... So in a way he kind of like... To house it. Helped force a discussion. (laughs) <laughs> about it's let's go, are we going to build a museum or whatever? Yeah, it took a while, but but it happened. So we do, um, we do. Our American American art is a focus of ours, and that is mainly, largely due to this inheritance. It's fantastic. Well, give us, give us before we go, give us a, a plug of t- of of the exhibition when it's uh, when people can come see it. Ooh, all the time. Um, Yes, yeah, so the exhibit, um, it's open now. We want everyone to come see it, you know, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Friday nights, open till 9. We are having this special opening on Friday night, 7 to 9 p.m. We'd love anyone to come by, have a chance to, you know, chat Mahanrai with some of his family. But the exhibit will be up through September 21st. And, you know, it's one of those things I would have loved to keep it up a long time. But we decided to include so many of these drawings to show his process and his and his approach that you know four months is all we can do to keep our little drawings safe from too much light yeah. so please come um i'm i'm not even in doubt there's something for everyone because mahanra is just that kind of kind of artist well thank you ashley whitaker it's always thank a privilege you. to have you we're very excited so about fun. this and uh i look forward to going multiple times to the exhibition do it thanks I would like to thank Ashley Whitaker for joining us for this episode of the Zion Art Podcast presented by the Zion Art Society. You can listen to this and past interviews we've done and see images that we talked about in this interview on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. I'd like to thank Eric Biggert for producing the show and um, you uh, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you.